0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, once again we pause to be reminded as Pastor Brock prayed that, Lord, we are here for You. This is about You. This is about Your glory first and foremost. Thank You for the wonderful weather. We're we're able to be here and worship You, sing songs to You. May those words be the reflection of our hearts. May our fellowship be sweet and tender because of Christ. Father, thank You for this particular season of the year where we can pause to thank You for the evidences of grace all around us. And I pray that we would be deliberate and purposeful in doing that. Lord, even this morning, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the fact that we have um, Your self-revelation to Your people and that we can learn about You and know You. Thank You that we can know You through Jesus Christ. And so help us to do that even as we look at the life of our Lord this morning. May you be honored and glorified. Lord, give us teachable and humble hearts, hearts that are eager and ready to apply the truth that we learn. And we ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 is our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Pastor R. Kent Hughes recalls a unique experience on one of his trips to the Philippines, and he writes this, in May 1981, I remember being miserably hot as I sat in a KLM 747 at Manila's International Airport. Because Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos and his wife were giving a state welcome for the visiting Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, our jet, just having arrived, was made to sit for almost an hour with the air conditioning off. Since I could do nothing but watch, I took careful note of what I saw. Alongside the president and his wife stood a platoon of navy-clad honor guards wearing shining gold pith helmets. Next to them was another platoon dressed in Forest green and white gloves and hats. Then came a crimson and gold uniformed band. Finally came a group resplendent in white naval uniforms. Add to the scene swaying Philippine, Filipino dancers in chartreuse and purple. A baby elephant clad in scarlet. A long red carpet. A Philippine jet bearing the epigram. "Hurrah for Hollywood. A 21-gun salute. Several gleaming black limousines a temperature of 100 degrees, and you have the picture. As I sat perspiring and gazing through the mirage-like heat wave rising from the runway, I thought to myself, this is the best the world has to offer in honor and material pomp. But it is so transitory, and it was. was. There were a few words, some ringing volleys, and everyone was gone except for those rolling up the red carpet and sweeping the blazing asphalt. In subsequent years, similar thoughts came again to me as I read of the Marcos' incredibly obsessive materialism. How Mrs. Marcos owned some 3,000 pairs of shoes and hundreds upon hundreds of designer dresses. On one occasion, she spent $1 million in one day. All this to festoon her aging body, that is, as the scriptures say, wasting away. Of course, now the rain, the palace, the shopping sprees are all gone. The Marcoses tried their best, their very best, to make it last forever, but they could not. So it is with the rulers on earth." So true, isn't it? As we look at our world that is so um, preoccupied and fixated with materialism, isn't it true, beloved, that worldly glory and worldly splendor has a way of fading away? And I pray that during this holiday season that you and I would be especially thankful as Christians that we have a king whose glory and splendor will never pass away. Amen? He is a glorious king. He is the one that we celebrate during this time, especially this holiday season. And so this morning we have an opportunity to behold our king once again. Through what we call the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to keep in mind as we dive into this passage that is so impactful, that teaches us so much about the heart of Christ through his actions and what he does here. Keep in mind the, the context leading up to our passage. Keep in mind the fact that it's the time of the three great feasts, especially the Passover feast. And keep in mind the fact that pilgrims, people are pouring in into Jerusalem from all over the region and from outside of Palestine, even. Jews are pouring in and, and people who, Gentiles who have transitioned to the Jewish way of life and religion are, are pouring in to celebrate these feasts and especially the Passover feast. It is estimated that some 90 to 100,000 people Used to live in Jerusalem. But during the Passover feasts, we get estimates from anywhere between 2 million to 3 million people would be pouring in at one time into Jerusalem. And so imagine the atmosphere. Imagine how electric it must have been. A time of feasts. Imagine the energy in the air. And specifically, our passage takes place on Palm Sunday. This is Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus' betrayal five days later. This is the Sunday, seven days before Jesus rises from the dead. It's Palm Sunday. And now Mark wants us to know that the, that the king has finally arrived. He is ready to enter Jerusalem. Remember, Mark has used these words like and and immediately throughout his gospel. To get us to the point of realizing, I want to get you to Jerusalem. This is where Jesus wants to get to. And now he has finally arrived. He's at the foot of the door. And how important is this week of Passion Week to Mark? He devotes his last six chapters of the Gospel according to Mark to this last week of Jesus' ministry. The Passion Week. The last seven days, we get six chapters of what takes place in these, um, uh, during this final week. And so we're going to have a great time in the next weeks and months ahead looking at this final week in Mark chapters 11 through 16. And this morning, we're going to look at the king's arrival in three movements here, okay? So first, I want us to keep in mind the place of the king's arrival. The place of the king's arrival in verse 1. Look there. As they approached, Jerusalem, God's Word says, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives. Stop there. From long ago, it's been anticipated, if you've read your Old Testament, that the city of Zion, specifically here in this context, Jerusalem was the place of the great king. The location from which he would one day rule. And now we're told Jesus is on the verge of arriving to Jerusalem, but He finds Himself at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Great uh, strategic geographical high points that Mark gives us here. That He is at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. These locations are important because in the nearby city of Bethany, about two miles away is Bethany from Jerusalem... It's where Jesus in Bethany has done a huge monumental miracle that you need to keep in mind. And it's recorded in the Gospel of John. And this miracle is the raising of the infamous Lazarus from the dead. And what's important about that particular miracle is that many of the Jews who are here at this triumphal entry have witnessed that miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's in fact that raising of Lazarus that really expedites the hostile, hateful actions of the religious leaders to plot to kill Jesus and to cause Him suffering. Concerning the amazing response of the crowds, to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 12 and verse 9 says this, The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, and they came to nearby Bethany, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. And then listen to this, But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death, Also, this is in addition to their desire to put Jesus to death, they want to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because on account of him, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And so keep this in mind. As Jesus is ready to enter his place of destination, Jerusalem, recognize that there are already loaded guns in his direction due to his heightened popularity with the people, especially after Lazarus is raised from the dead here. Which leads us to our second point, our second movement, the preparation for the king's arrival. The preparation for the king's arrival. Look at the middle of verse 1, where we are told that it's at this nearby location that Jesus sent two of his disciples. We don't know what two disciples these were. And then verse 2 And he said to them, go into the village opposite you. We also don't know specifically what village this was, but most likely it was Bethphage, which was walking distance from there. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now, question for you. How did Jesus know that this colt would be there? How did he know? What is the answer that Mark continues to give us? And what is the answer that the Gospels give us? It is this. He is God. He is God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's unlimited in knowledge. Yes, he took on human nature, but he never ceased to be God. Jesus added a human nature to his to his divine nature during His humanity, during His earthly life. This is how He knows that this animal will be there. Now when you see this word of a cult in verse 2, don't think of, a, of an American donkey, okay? Don't think of an American animal. These first century Jewish donkeys were were much smaller. They were more of the, the, like the size of a small pony. Like a small pony. You know, my kids over the years loved going to Griffith Park nearby here to ride the, the ponies there at Griffith Park. And, um, and for the most part, all of them were perfectly okay riding, their po- riding on a pony with um, their parents just being around and us not needing to walk with them. But there was one particular kid who will remain unnamed, okay, who was not initially comfortable going by himself. Oops, I just gave it away, so it's one of the three boys, okay? So one time, because this one wasn't as comfortable initially going on a pony by himself, I had to go jump on one of those ponies and ride along with him while he rode his own pony. Needless to say, okay, I didn't look very manly on that pony, all right? I looked kind of silly on that thing. Well, imagine the Lord Jesus asking for a similar-sized animal upon which he's going to enter into Jerusalem. And this highlights for us, doesn't it? His choice of a small animal like that, to ride on top of as the king of Israel, one of the great paradoxes that exists in the Gospels concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where on the one hand, you have the great humility of Jesus, the suffering servant who according to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the one hand, you have the humility and the utter condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet on the other hand, you have the unmatched power and the unrivaled authority of King Jesus, who does what kinds of things in the Gospels, who commands the wind and the sea to obey him. Who commands demons to get out of people and they obey without a word. Actually, words of even worship they offer to Him. Who commands people to be healed of their sicknesses, their infirmities and their uh, diseases. In Christ, you have this great paradox of both humility and power and authority in one person. And here in our passage observe how on the one hand he's asking for this colt for this young donkey no larger than a small pony showing his great humility and yet again his great condescension and yet observe the authority with which jesus speaks look at verse two with authority he commanded his disciples to 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 go to go do this And according to Matthew 21 and verse 6, the parallel account, it says that the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed or had commanded them. And then look at verse 3. If anyone says to you, says our Lord, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. That title Lord is not referring just to another human being. He's not just saying, tell them the, the master, your sir, has sent you to get that donkey or colt. That's, that's a term there used by Jesus that refers only to God. This is, refers to the sovereign one. Tell them that the sovereign one has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. Look at verse 5. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, to the two disciples, what are you doing untying the colt? Verse 6, they, the disciples, spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. How was that? With authority. And verse 6 says, and they gave them permission. And so what you have here is on the one hand, the great humility of Jesus... The great condescension of Jesus, but beloved, don't ever forget we also witness the unrivaled power, the great authority of the Son of God. Throughout the passage, there's this tone of Jesus who is to be obeyed, as we just saw. Jesus who has all authority. And what a reminder this is to us to hold on to a whole Christ, to a complete Christ in our Christianity. You know, there are some people who focus on Jesus' deity, the fact that He is God, and rightly so. We must never lose sight of that. The only problem is that they forget that He's also really human, that He took upon a real human nature. And so that means that He actually identifies with us, that He understands what we are going through in life. That though sinless, he himself, because he was he is human, experienced our humanness, our struggles, our trials, our suffering. And yet he was blameless and sinless. All of this was part of his self humbling. And he did this so that he might be there for us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter two for a minute. I want you to see this Hebrews chapter two. And verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, meaning because we are humans, he himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same. The same meaning he became a human that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through the fear of death, namely all humans, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means a wrath-removing sacrifice. Christ became human so that He might experience our humanness, our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, our susceptibilities, and ultimately so that He might go to the cross as the great sin-bearer and be the wrath-removing sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. Verse 18, For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of of those who are tempted. Isn't that wonderful? Because Christ has a human nature. He understands you. He can empathize and sympathize with you and I, though He is blameless and sinless. He was always victorious. And so don't ever forget, beloved, Jesus humanity so that you and I would come boldly before the throne of grace, even during tumultuous times like the ones that we're living in in 2020, and to know that he is your merciful and faithful high priest who can identify with your weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Amen. Now, on the other hand, some people focus so much on Jesus's humanity that they forget about his deity, That He is God. And they forget that that because Jesus is God, Jesus is to be worshipped. Jesus is to be served. Jesus is to be loved. Jesus is to be obeyed. Jesus is to be feared. Jesus is to be revered. Jesus is not someone that you want to trifle with. Jesus is not only Savior, but He is Judge you understand. The same Jesus who tells you to come to Me. All ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in Me. That same Jesus is the same Jesus who when He returns will shed the blood of His enemies who have rejected His sacrifice for their sins on the cross. This complete Jesus... Is a far cry from the so-called Jesus of our culture, isn't he? That our culture has created. A Jesus with no backbone. A Jesus with no moral standards. A Jesus whose, whose so-called love is detached from truth. A Jesus who is so-called loving, who accepts people's sin and condemns no one and judges no one. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And as people, we must never forget that God never, ever, ever swept sin under the rug. Who did He punish instead for us? Christ, His Son. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. It's in Christ that our sins are paid for and our sins are covered And so listen, there is no loving Jesus detached from Jesus as just judge. And so make sure that you are beholding a whole Christ from Scripture and not succumbing to the erroneous um, uh, views or portraits that we see out there about Jesus. And what we have here, even at the triumphal entry, is that Jesus' almighty person is Here in the Gospel of Mark. And yet we see His utter humility in one person. Don't forget that. And so all the preparations are in place here. For the arrival of the Messiah, the King of Israel. And now thirdly, I want you to see the presentation of the King. The presentation of the King. Look at verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus. And put their coats on it. And He sat on it. This is so anticlimactic, isn't it? So anticlimactic. Listen, here is the eternal Son of God, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which means the preeminent one over all creation, according to Colossians 1.15. Here he is, here is the Son of God through whom the universe was created and for whom the universe was made, according to Colossians 1.16. Here is the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. Here is the one who has always been, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last, who is the sustainer of all things. And you would think that given His greatness given His great prestige from eternity past, you would anticipate a presentation here befitting more what we witness in the world. Similar to what Arkin Hughes described in my introduction. You would expect that. You would expect that His presentation would be full of pomp, full of splendor, full of luxury, but that's not what happens and how He enters, is it? This is a, a far cry, by the way, from the predominant Jewish expectation that the Messiah, the long awaited one, would one day be a, a political conqueror, somebody who would rescue Israel from their oppressors and, and bring them back once again to prominence and prestige. That's not what they get here. What do they get instead? A king who does not enter Jerusalem on a mighty horse but on a puny little donkey. A king who is not dressed in fine clothes befitting an earthly monarch, but one dressed in humble attire befitting a lowly servant, a lowly slave. A king who does not come heralding himself, but arrives meek and lowly. How counter countercultural, isn't it? How so different than what we know in our world? And that's what Jesus was saying in the previous context. You guys know, disciples, how the Gentiles, the non-believers of the world, the non-believing rulers, exercise authority over people. And their great men lord it over people. But it is not so among you. And guess what? He shows us here the example and the model of that to follow. He comes lowly and humble. What an example that he comes this way. I was thinking about that this week. The manner of Jesus is coming here. If Jesus would have presented himself in accordance with his majesty, in accordance with who he is, it would have been fitting. Because he truly is majestic, he truly is glorious. He showed His disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration just a a glimpse of His glory, a glimpse of His splendor. It is who He is. He is glorious. It would have been fitting for Him to do some of that. But how devastating that would have been for us. Why? Because in our natural fallen state, we crave glory and self-exaltation, don't we? But Jesus shows us a different way. That the way of the kingdom, the way of the cross is to be lowly, to be a servant and slave of all. And he modeled this for us, didn't he? Now, if they were paying attention to the word of God, his manner of arriving shouldn't have shocked them. Because this was, according to Matthew 21, verse 4, in fulfillment of prophecy, the manner in which he came. He fulfilled prophecy. Matthew 21, verse 4 says this, Now this, this humble triumphal entry, this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You know, those are. See in your Bibles how, whenever you see these words in, in caps, those are quotations from the Old Testament. And what you have in Matthew twenty-one verse four are quotations from two particular Old Testament scriptures: Isaiah sixty-two eleven which is basically written some six to seven hundred years before the triumphal entry. And then Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine written some five to six hundred years before the triumphal entry, before this particular historical event. And what's the point? Matthew is telling us this is exactly how God promised it would happen with the long awaited Messiah. He would come in this particular manner. And if the typical Jew, especially the religious leaders, were paying attention, they should have known that God's amazing providence was at work and God was fulfilling His Word to His people. And here's yet another example of this, of the faithfulness of God to fulfilling His promises. Boy, we need to be reminded of that today, don't we, beloved? That just as God fulfills Scripture here through in this triumphal entry, in this manner in which Jesus came, boy, God continues to fulfill His Word to us, doesn't He? Don't ever forget that. In the midst of such difficult, interesting times that we're living in. I've spoken to many of you who have said, these are, these are, I've never seen this in my lifetime. I've never seen issue after issue, conflict after conflict, problem after problem from a historical, from a human perspective. I've never seen this. These are unprecedented times, aren't they? In the midst of those times, in the midst of the uncertainty of the future. Isn't it so amazing and comforting and encouraging that God fulfills his promises exactly as he promised? And why does he do that? Because He is a faithful creator. He is a faithful heavenly Father. He is a faithful God. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Prophecy after prophecy being fulfilled. Pointing to the glorious faithfulness of God. And so God was fulfilling His promises here in the manner in which jesus entered as well if the the insightful jew who was paying attention to the word of god should have seen this now look at the response of the crowds first we see their actions in verse eight and many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields they gave them the red carpet treatment treated him with honor like a human king, spreading their coats there. They also cut down leafy branches and laid them out for him. This is the, the red carpet treatment. All of this is a, is, is a reflection of honor, a celebration of victory. Listen, from their perspective, their long-awaited Messiah had come to do for them what they, emphasis on they, expected Secondly, we see their words in verse 9. Those who went in, in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know what Hosanna is? Most of us think of it as, as, as words a word of praise, and it is that. But more importantly, literally, it means, Lord, save us now. Lord, save us now. It was a plea for deliverance. It was a plea for God's salvation to come. See the words there in your English Bibles that appear in caps? Those signify a a quotation specifically of Psalm 118 and verse 26. And Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm which tells us of the ultimate salvation that God's King will bring to His people, that His Messiah will bring to His specially chosen people. And Psalm 118 is one of those psalms that are known as the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And what's unique about the Hallel Psalms is that they were sung every morning by arriving pilgrims during this great time of celebration, especially during the time of the Passover. And so that's what they're saying. It is praise, but more than that, it's deliverance, salvation. And what is shocking about this, of course... And most importantly, is that they are ascribing all of this to Jesus, much to the disdain and the disapproval of the religious leaders. They're referring to Jesus as the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one who represents God, who represents Yahweh. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is the long-awaited king. Hosanna to the son of David, says Matthew twenty-one eleven that they were saying. Do you remember in the previous passage how the blind man referred to Jesus as Jesus, son of David? That was significant. This was people's way of attributing to Jesus kingship, kingship, monarchy. It was a big deal for the people to say this about Jesus. And this is why Luke 19.39 says that the, that the Pharisees told Jesus to, to rebuke the multitudes saying, that were saying this. And then Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It's true, Jesus said what they're saying. Why would I tell them to stop? This is exactly what is what is befitting who I am in light of the light of who I am. Christ is the King. Turn with me to Matthew twenty one. Matthew twenty one. Because all of this. Created quite a stir. Matthew 21, verses 10-16 through is worth reading in full. It says in verse 10, And when He, Jesus, had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? So some, believe it or not, there were some people there who were not familiar with Him. Remember, you have an estimated over 2 million people in contrast to the 100,000 or so that typically were in Jerusalem. So some people don't know who this is. They're asking. But others, verse 11, and the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So most of the people were familiar with the two plus years of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He was known, a known person. He was popular. People understood who he was. Look at down in verse 14. And the blind. And the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Verse 15, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done. I love that. When they saw the wonderful things. That's Matthew's commentary on the wonder of Jesus. On the wonder of what Jesus was doing to heal people that way in the temple. That's Matthew's commentary. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done. And the children who were crying out in the temple, verse 15, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. The sense there is they became aroused to hostility. They became aroused to to sinful anger. See, to them... That Jesus was being referred to as the Messiah infuriated them. They were envious and jealous of Jesus. They would not have it. Verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? Thou hast prepared praise for thyself. That's a quotation from Psalm 8 and verse 2. Where David, the psalmist, refers to God as receiving praise from people in the light of who Yahweh is in His majesty. And what's amazing is, is that here in Matthew twenty-one sixteen, Jesus is saying, essentially, it's okay for these children to sing this way to me. Why? Because I am who? I am God. I am God. Because only God deserves that kind of praise, is worthy of that kind of praise. Say that to anybody else would be idolatry. But Jesus is God. And so think about this. As Jesus finally arrives to his destination, to Jerusalem, according to Mark, you have different sets of people here, different groupings of people who are witnessing this. First, you have a few followers. Among these are are his disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, who will show himself to be a traitor and never a true follower of Jesus. So you have followers of Jesus. They might not fully understand him, but they believe him. They believe in him. They love him. They are following after him. To whatever extent they understand his upcoming suffering, they are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ And these followers are the same ones who will grow in leaps and bounds in the next 45 days leading to His ascension. These are His followers, some of these people. But then there's everyone else. Everyone else. The many. The many. Because narrow is the way that leads to life. It's always been that way. It was here even during this time for the Lord Jesus. There were many, everyone else who was not following after Jesus. Now we often focus on the religious leaders who are hostile to our Lord. They're hounding Him. They reject Him. They eventually will be the ones responsible for handing Him over to the Romans who will kill Him. But then there are the multitudes of people, the the non-religious leaders, who many of them have heard the words of Jesus, have Witness the works of Christ, and they still don't believe in His claims. They still don't know Him personally and intimately, though they have many, many facts. Intellectually speaking, they understand a lot of facts about Jesus. They don't believe in Him from the heart. Think about these groupings of people. And I want you to transport yourself to that day and age. And I want to ask you this morning, which grouping or which category of people do you fall under? Where are you at this morning in connection to Christ? His claims, His death on the cross... His resurrection, His soon return. Where are you at with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ? I want you to put your heart on the table before the Lord and ask yourself, where am I this morning with reference to Jesus? What's my relationship to Him like? Do I believe with all my heart that Jesus is God? That He came in human flesh to identify with me? and my infirmities, and also die on the cross as the great sin bearer for my personal sins, and that He rose from the dead on my behalf? Have I repented of my sins, turned from my sins, and put my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I a follower of Jesus? Maybe that is you this morning. Praise the Lord. You have the the greatest reason to be thankful for this Thanksgiving season. That your soul is secure and you rest in Christ, not because of anything you've done, any good works, any favor you can gain before God, but because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. No matter what happens in this world, were this universe to melt with intense heat tomorrow, if you are in Christ, you can rest in the reality that you are saved. Amen? That you have eternal life. Or are you in the category of everyone else? Maybe you are hostile to the Lord Jesus. You neither believe his claims, nor do you believe he's done all the things we read about in Scripture to you. My friend, I would say that the evidence is right before your eyes. All you have to do is open up the Bible, the Word of God, to behold who Jesus is and what he has done. The evidence is before you. And what awaits you is sure judgment. And it's sure judgment not because of a lack of evidence, not because you are a great sinner. But because you simply won't believe. You simply won't give up your sinful lifestyle, your life of self worship to worship and bow your knee to King Jesus. Maybe you're indifferent to Jesus. Maybe you're the person who says, hey, get off my back. I'm not hostile to Jesus, I just don't care. You believe what you want to believe and let me be. I believe that there are many options and that Jesus is only one option. I'm sure there were people who were indifferent to Jesus on the day of the triumphal entry as well, who didn't believe in his claims, who didn't believe that he was the Messiah, who didn't even care. To you, I would say what the scripture says in Acts 2.36, that God, the creator of the universe, has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. There is only one Lord, one king, and his name is King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. To you who are hostile or indifferent to Jesus, I would point you to what Acts 17:31 says that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. It's done. It's certain. It's fixed. as, as fixed as, as the character of God is that is unchanging and immutable. So it is the day when God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not just one option. He is the option. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ that you can receive salvation Christ is exclusively the only way for you and I to be saved from our sins and to be rescued from hell and condemnation. Only through Christ is salvation found. And there is a day of judgment coming when God will not condemn people because they were great sinners or because they weren't good enough. None of us can be. But because they rejected his king, because they rejected his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the fickle, superficial crowds you see here who did this. Most of these people who are crying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. Most of these people just days later will be among those who will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We'd rather have this other guy who is guilty, rather than Jesus. We'd rather have Barabbas. Think about that. How superficial, how fickle these crowds were. And how amazing and how ironic that here were thousands and thousands of pilgrims who were going to be doing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in observance of the Passover feast, and yet they missed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amazing, how ironic. They only wanted his gifts, but didn't love him, the giver. They wanted a a political conqueror, political deliverer, but not a spiritual savior from their sins. And so, my friend, if this is you this morning, stop playing games with God. Stop playing games with your eternal future. Don't be like most of this, these crowds that were there at the triumphal entry. Hostile or indifferent or superficial or fickle in their so-called trust of Jesus. Put your trust in the biblical Lord Jesus Christ who is revealed in His Word. The only one who is the mediator between God and men. And be made right with God today. Let 2020 be the year not of despair due to a decaying world that is so obvious before us, isn't it? But let 2020 be the year of hope for you in this life and in the life to come. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for the Passover Lamb, the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to put our trust in Your Son. Help us to love Him. Help us to live for Him. Help us, Lord, to not be like the crowds on the day of the triumphal entry, most of whom were fickle, superficial. They didn't have an accurate picture of Jesus. And consequently, Lord, most of those people were condemned to eternal judgment and condemnation. We know that for those who do not put their trust in Christ... The same fate is sure and certain. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are people listening today, that, Lord, today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day where they would find rest for their souls in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who are following Him, who love Him imperfectly amidst all of our struggles, Father, help us to live in the light of our King's return. Help us to know that even though Jesus came in humble condescension at the triumphal entry, one day it's going to be very different. He's going to come back, Lord, in power and in the fullness of His authority and glory to judge the living and the dead. Lord, help us to live in the light of that. Help us to live with compassion and mercy so that knowing that Jesus is returning, we might tell others about Him, that people might find their only hope in Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.